Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. They were in a panic. And like people in a panic, they want solutions. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children. The thing is, there were no satanic cults preying on children. And nearly 30 years later, the people touched by it all are still picking up the pieces. This isn't a work of fiction. This is a work of history. Satanic Panic, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. The Great American Write-Off. That's what writer Anand Girdardas calls the way that people at different ends of the political spectrum dismiss each other. That person will never change because they said that thing about the vaccine. That person will never change because they don't believe in climate change, so on and so forth. But turning away from fellow citizens is not ideal when the political stakes are so high. In the United States, as elsewhere, democracy itself is threatened. That's why Anand Girdaradas began to follow American progressives arguing for a different path. People who know that MAGA Republicans, disinformation, and QAnon conspiracies are major obstacles to changing minds but are certain a significant number of their fellow citizens can be convinced to fight for a more humane and just democracy. They believe in more communication with the other side in an effort to grow their movements. Girdaradas calls such people the persuaders. Activists, organizers, concerned citizens, even politicians who are unshakable in their progressive goals and values, but are equally devoted to listening, talking, and inviting outsiders in. Take Loretta Ross. She's a longtime reproductive and human rights activist, an African-American who has even worked to rehabilitate former KKK members. Ross advocates for a call-in culture, the opposite of the ever-popular call-out. You're racist, sexist, toxic, manipulative. With this approach, you've guaranteed one thing. You just invited them to a fight, not a conversation. People have pain and struggle in their lives, and that pain and struggle doesn't have to do solely with your race, doesn't have to do solely with your identity. It's a shared pain and struggle. Faz Shakir is a labor organizer and political advisor. He sees class as an area where the divides can meet. I think that there's a way to connect it so that we are seeing each other for our commonalities more so than our differences. These are just two of the people that Anand Girdaradas profiles in his latest book. It's called The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. I spoke with him about it at a public event, part of the Toronto Public Library's On Civil Society series. I began by asking how he was feeling just a week out from the November midterm elections in the U.S. I mean, it's a scary era, whether you live in Canada or whether you live in the United States or whether you live in Brazil or whether you live in India. And there's good days and there's bad days for democracy. And we had a very good day for democracy not long ago, um, we are in such a 
precipice in the United States and elsewhere that a very good day is the difference between really, really terrifying outcomes and more reassuring ones. But I don't rest in any kind of comfort that in these kind of referendums on democracy that so many of our countries are experiencing, 51-49 or 53-47 victories in defense of democracy, uh, you know, they may reduce the number of times I make wake up in the middle of the night by like 10 or 15 percent, uh, but they don't keep me from waking up in the middle of the night. We are still around the world and certainly in the United States, uh, perhaps the leading edge of this, unfortunately, uh, in a real crisis in which pro-democracy, pro-freedom forces are struggling to outcompete anti-democratic, deceptive, sometimes fascistic forces in a battle for hearts and minds. And so I felt very good after those results, but I still feel that there is a tremendous amount of work to do to build pro-democracy movements that can durably beat back the menace of, of deception, uh, wannabe tyranny, xenophobia, and these other dark forces. So it's still a shade kind of under cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic, and the work is long. This is a generational project. We, we are in a generational mess that democracy in so many different places with different histories, different issues, has gotten so close to obliteration, and it's going to be the work of a generation to put democracy back onto any kind of safe footing. Your book is about persuasion, and I was curious what, how much you think persuasion actually had a, or was a factor in the success of the Democrats this time around. Look, persuasion is always what is happening in politics, but the problem is, the problem with which my book begins is that many of us have given up on persuasion in this moment of rising polarization around the world. We, we participate in what I call in the book, the great write-off, you know, uh, that person will never change because they voted that way once, that person will never change because they belong to this group and their interest in protecting the power and privileges of that group will mean they will never change. Now, I have participated, I hear, see nods in the audience. I have participated in the culture of the write-off as much as all of you nodders and the people who are not nodding because you're trying to pretend it's not you also. Um, <laughs> I think we've all participated in the culture of the write-off in this time. In some ways, it's the culture of the age of polarization. The problem with it is it's, A, empirically false. It is not true that people don't change. A whole lot of 2021's anti-vaxxers are now fully vaccinated. A whole bunch of people who hated gay folks in the 1990s now have no problem with them and vote for gay candidates and people who advance pro-gay policies. A bunch of people who have supported Donald Trump or other kind of authoritarian movements around the world have since changed their mind and voted against those movements. So persuasion is always going on. And when we turn our back on the idea of persuasion out of our despair, out of our fatalism, out of our depression at what's happening, we kind of leave the terrain open to the worst actors. The, the, here's the problem. The worst actors always believe in persuasion, right? You know, I mean, there would be no Fox News if they didn't believe in persuasion. They think everyone's in play. Really, I mean this very seriously. Like, there's a reason they play these looping videos of people crossing the border and this. I mean, they believe that a new fearful person is born every second, right? They believe 
a new racist is born every second. They believe that they can constantly draw people in to their dystopian view of the world in which everyone, alien and other, is a threat. But you're not prescribing that we have another Fox News on the other side. No, I'm suggesting that if the most dangerous movements of our time believe in persuasion and conversion and the most righteous and inclusive movements of our time get this kind of French philosopher shrug about, ugh, they'll never change, we are sleepwalking our way into tyranny and into regimes of disinformation. And so I really, with this book, desperately want the pro-democracy side to reclaim persuasion. And I wrote the book because I didn't have the answers to how we do that. I spent a lot of time with people, organizers, activists, politicians, cognitive scientists, occult deprogrammer, because that's where we are uh, now, and others who I think hold certain insights about how we can reach people even when it seems so hard, how we can pull back those relatives, those voters, those coworkers who we seem to have lost to the far side. Let me ask you about the process a little bit. I mean, did you have to be persuaded on this journey of persuasion or were you already persuaded on your way to finding the answers? I will tell you, I started this book with a lot of despair, frankly. You know, it's been, and I understand that, you know, the situation in America is obviously way more dire than the situation here. You know, we have been in this seven-year defensive crouch where it really feels like the absolute worst possible tendencies in our history and culture and institutions are right at the surface, ready to engulf the whole project of the country. And I started the book kind of late 2019, early 2020, really in a place of despair. Just is, is the side that wants like more democracy rather than less, more people to be included rather than less, to fight climate change rather than die in a wildfire. Are, are we able to win? It didn't seem to me we were winning. And I didn't have the answer in my own heart. If I did, this would be an autobiography. So I tried to find people who did. And I sought out a bunch of people kind of outside the national limelight. Some of them are in the national limelight, but a lot of the work they do is not. But people who were addressing this issue of how do you persuade? How do you build a bigger we? How do you build a bigger coalition and keep a messy coalition for these ideas of more democracy, more progress, economic equality and justice, so on and so forth. And what, um, what kind of came out of spending time with these people was kind of a new playbook, an organizer's playbook, I would call it, a persuader's playbook of things that they are doing and advocate doing that kind of is the opposite of what I see the Democratic Party in the United States doing, what I see a lot of the political left doing around the world. Like these are people in the left, progressives, who kind of advocate a pretty whole scale reinvention of the political approach of their own side. And so I kind of started to follow this new playbook and tried to understand the moves of this new playbook. And in the process, I would say, I came away a lot more hopeful than how I went in. Looking from this end, and of course we can't say that this doesn't happen here in Canada as well, but many Americans can't agree on some very basic facts. What evidence do you think was most compelling in persuading you that opinions can be changed? I think a lot of these persuaders that I'm writing about have a different mental model of people on the other side from them on issues than most of us have, certainly than I have, than a lot of people I see have. Their basic mental model is people are confused. 
People are, as Beyonce says on her new album, contradicted. People are conflicted. People are torn. Now, not everybody, right? I think most of these people I write about in the book would say, in most of our democracies, there's kind of a hardcore 20% on the left and a hardcore 20% on the right. What distinguishes those two 20s is not the strength of their opinions or the pungency of their opinions. It's how thought through their opinions are. You're not going to chat them out of their opinion on immigration at a bar in a night. That, those two 20%. They've watched the movies. They've read the books. They've done the homework. There's some roots under that. Now, if you go do average voter interviews in the street, people are much more all over the place. I hate socialism. and They better not take away my universal health care. It's just like people are just like, it's kind of funny, but it's also like people are conflicted. People have differing moral commitments. People, you know, grew up in the Cold War and were told socialism's bad, but they have a knee injury and they like the Canadian healthcare system, right? They're just like people live real complicated lives and embody those complexities. That, that kind of 60% of people in the middle and the 60% of folks in the middle, these persuaders I write about, they are obsessed with how these 60% of people in the middle, they, they may say they're in a party, but they can be toggled into a pretty right-wing view of the world or a pretty left-wing view of the world on a given issue, depending on the atmosphere, depending on who the candidate is in front of them, depending on whether inflation is 2% or 20%, depending on whether things feel abundant in their town or scarce, depending on whether every time they close their eyes and open them, their town feels like unrecognizable from a demographic point of view or it feels pretty stable. All these things that just affect people's very visceral sense of, am I okay? Am I safe? Am I whole? Is my family okay? Like just that the basic human thing of like, am I okay? All the factors that impinge on that sense of safety really, really affect that thing. So when Fox News or its equivalents shows people images of caravans on the border ferrying undocumented immigrants across the southern border, that 60% of people in the middle can really be toggled into a very fear-based right-wing narrative on the border. Then they, All of them are not going to move, but, but a significant fraction of them will suddenly adopt that frame. However, if you remember this issue where the Trump administration was separating children from parents on the border, that had the opposite effect. Suddenly, a bunch of people in that 60% group who do not support open borders in general, who, who are not immigration doves in general, but when that happened, a whole bunch of those people were like, this is not who we are. Suddenly, something had happened where those people were open to a, a set of arguments around immigration that were really different from before. So the persuaders I write about in this book with that fundamental view of people as contradicted, as Beyonce says, then set out to think about how do I encircle voters with so much chatter about how what we want to do, our side of things is normal, that they essentially think that's the way the world is. It's not about persuading that group in the middle by diluting things, by moderating things, by compromising things away so that you're offering them, you know, a halfway measure on everything. It's actually thinking about them as people who are almost like buying pants. Like when you buy pants, you don't do an analysis of like, what is the weather? Like, what is the thickness of the fabric that would be appropriate for this weather? Like for this much money, this many days of use. That's not how anyone buys pants. You buy pants by sort of intuitively thinking to yourself, like, what are we doing these days on pants? Like, what are people doing? Are we doing, like, I, I know Gen Z is not doing skinny jeans anymore. Is it only Gen Z that's not doing it? Are we all supposed to not do skinny anymore? Are we cuffing? Are we not cuffing? Right? 
That's how people buy pants, like a visceral sense of like, what are we all doing? Like, what's everybody else doing? And I think what a lot of the persuaders I'm writing about this book basically argue is that for that 60% in the middle, they are choosing where they land on politics in ways that are much more similar to pant selection than we may realize. Um, it's interesting the process with which you describe this actually happens. Because the other thing that I think a lot of people here might be able to relate to is trying to make an argument to change someone's mind based purely on saying, well, my way is right, or this is the right, these are the facts. Tell me about the difference between displacing and replacing the way somebody thinks. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, a lot of us, when we think about reaching that climate denier uncle or that low-key racist colleague or, you know, that person you're doing door-to-door political canvassing on or whatever, it's tempting to try to kind of attempt to replace what someone is thinking with what you think they should think. That's in many ways how we define persuasion, right? You you have these false, this uh, pseudoscience in your head about climate. I would like to cut that out like a surgeon and just put in the correct science on climate change or, or insert whatever issue. Now, if you've been married, you know that doesn't work. Um, <laughs> you cannot, in fact, replace other people's thoughts. And what Loretta Ross said to me and so many others did in different ways was, you can only displace people's thoughts. You can't replace them. And what does displace mean? It means what you can do is plant doubts. You can unsettle, uproot, disturb the certitude someone has. So how did that work in Loretta Ross's case? She talked about you have to make people have questions again, which is different from giving them your answers, right? So let me give you a couple applications. Like one is, with this disinformation stuff. This comes up very clearly. What do most of us do when we deal with people who are have succumbed to climate disinformation or other forms of disinformation? We rebut. You said this temperature statistic, and it's in fact that temperature statistic. Well, rebuttal doesn't work. That's kind of in that category of replacement, right? Displacement in that case is showing a concern for how otherwise intelligent, critically thinking people who you care about have been misled by powerful people with an interest in misleading them using common tactics of manipulation that are quite easily identified, right? That's really different from saying that you're wrong about that, you're wrong about that, you're wrong about that. Going to that place of, I'm just concerned that the same way big companies lied to us about smoking until our aunt died at 41, I'm concerned that some of those same kinds of manipulative arguments are now being used against you. And I'm, I, wor- I worry for you, brother. Again, it's not going to work every time, but I, I have a chapter in the book in which I talk about, talk to two experts. One of them was a cult victim herself, Diane Benskoder. Uh, she was in the Moonies in the 70s. And she describes very powerfully this kind of displace, replace with her. Her mom organized the deprogramming session with these two women who came to see her. And she's sitting at the table and they just start, they start rebutting like their view of Jesus relative to her view of Jesus. Just not working. It wasn't working. She didn't even have the rebuttal of their rebuttal, but she just knew that there was a rebuttal somewhere that someone would have. And she was like not buying it. Right. And then they change tax and they start reading to her from a book about Mao's brainwashing techniques in revolutionary China. And what was interesting about this is she had no investment in China. It was far afield from her world. 
shouldn't have the same walls and guardedness about that situation. It wasn't about the Moonies. It wasn't about Jesus. It's like, okay, some academic thing about brainwashing techniques in China. And she's just listening to this thing. And there's like seven techniques or something. And she starts hearing these techniques. And she just has this moment of like, oh, sh. Like, I recognize these techniques. And, and she describes like the world, just like the glass shattering around, you know. And so when they were trying to displace her thoughts, it didn't work. When they just planted the seed that you might have been conned, she broke. And what is it about that? I mean, you, you talked previously about the need not to be conned as being a very strong human desire. What role does that play in actually getting that person to where you need them to get? Again, these are like these cross-cutting things which emerged afterwards. This is to me a book about like the politics of emotions and feeling and like pro-democracy forces neglect of the emotional and psychological lens on politics when in fact the bad guys really understand emotion and psychology and people who want to do good things do not understand emotion and psychology. That's sort of one of the meta arguments of the book. So again, on disinformation, um, I would say I have, and this is sort of just always how I've thought about politics, an emotional understanding of what's happening with disinformation. And what these experts said to me is, there's really two emotions that are present in all people that are at play in disinformation. Emotion number one, the desire for the world to make easy sense, right? Like the world is complicated. We are all trying to boil it down a little bit, simplify it a little bit, have some kind of answer. That's what ideologies are for, right? They're just kind of like algorithms for your brain so you don't have to think about like all the permutations of everything all the time. You can't do it. We're all trying to simplify. Second, another emotion we all have is the desire not to be anybody's pawn, not to be anybody's dupe, not to be anybody's mark, right? Very deep human desire that again is, I think, universal. What happens with people who have been victims of disinformation, what happens with the 43 million Americans who are now QAnon victims, um, in spite of our great trade relationship, try not to import that one, I can warn you. Um, basically, emotion number one, the desire for the world to make facile sense, has now drastically overwhelmed emotion number two, which is the desire not to be anybody's fool. And to win those people back, again, you're not going to do it all the time, but to win enough of them back, you need to play up within them, not implant, play up within them that native feeling that they have of not being anybody's, not being anybody's fool, right? And you see, I mean, that's the emotion behind like the anti-masking. Like that emotion is strong. It's strong in right-wing people, the desire not to be anybody's pawn, but somehow it gets suppressed often in these things. And so figuring out smart ways to, to kind of get that back is very crucial. You're listening to Ideas and a conversation with American author Anand Girdaradas. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. 
What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. You may know Anand Girdaradas as the author of the bestseller Winners Take All. In that book, the former New York Times journalist turned author cast a critical eye on the global elite. He criticizes business leaders and billionaire philanthropists who claim to be changing the world for the better, saying they simply shore up the status quo. But his latest book, he says, is about real change. It's about attracting people to support the progressive political movements that he sees as essential for democracy to survive in his home, the United States. Anand Girdaradas discussed The Persuaders on stage with me at the Toronto Reference Library as the results of the November 22 midterm elections came into focus. The prediction of a Republican red wave did not transpire, and it's possible that outreach was one of the factors that aided the Democrats. Techniques like deep canvassing, an approach used by the persuaders that he profiles in his book. Deep canvassing is one of the most exciting things happening in politics in the world, I think. It's the thing that I ended the book with because it gave me such profound hope. So many of you have probably done or or been on the receiving end of regular political canvassing, which is like people coming to your door with a flyer or a brochure, and they stay for 10 to 30 seconds, and they ask if you know where your polling place is in the United States, and they ask if you, you know, it's almost never persuasion. It's all shoring up the friendlies, right? They have these apps on their phone that tell them this house is safe. And, you know, and with America being the way it is, like, it's kind of important (laughs) to know. Uh, It's not an (laughs) academic exercise to only go to safe houses. Deep canvassing grew out of a very beautiful night in American history, the night Barack Obama won the presidency, that was also in California a very bad night when gay marriage lost. After being legal by, legalized by courts for a few months, it lost in the referendum that night. So big, amazing night in American history that overshadowed a really terrible thing that happened that night in California. And a bunch of gay rights activists in California looked at the vote coming in and they realized it wasn't rural areas, it wasn't Christians in faraway places. It was Los Angeles County voted against gay marriage in 2008. Okay. Now, LA is an incredibly great place to be a gay person by all reckoning. And LA County voted against gay marriage. These people woke up and they were like, where am I living? Right? One of the canvassers, if eventual canvassers described going to the grocery store and like standing in the produce aisle and just like looking at people on the left, looking at people on the right, like several of these people think I'm not fully human in LA, right? So it started an experiment of going door to door. Again, this is not for everybody and you don't have to do this. And most gay people didn't want to do this. And most black people don't want to do this with white voters. And This is for people who want to do this, right? A bunch of these gay rights activists started going door to door and saying, I want to go talk to these people. I want to understand why they're so afraid of me. I'm genuinely curious. I don't think I'm that scary, but clearly I am to them. So I want to go have these conversations. So they did. And first it was kind of helter skelter. And then it evolved into this formal method now where people go to the door. They spend 30 to 40 minutes per door if they can. They don't go to friendlies. They go to all kinds of people including very unfriendlies. They take their chances. These are undocumented people who could be deported any second, knocking on the doors to talk about immigration. This is trans people knocking on the door to talk about trans rights. 
These are incredibly brave people I write about in the book. And they basically listen. They strategically listen. They're very clear about why they're there. They don't lie. They're honest about their stance on the issue, but then they listen. And they do the thing that we don't do in this age, which is they just listen without calling out. They feel no moral obligation to like stamp on your toxic opinions as you say them. They just let your toxic opinions out. They let them come out. They're not lying and pretending that they think your toxic opinions are great, but they're just, they're not feeling an obligation to like register their disapproval. They just let it come out, let it come out. Collect bile. You got any more bile? I got a big bucket. Just give me all your bile. Bile is finite. So bile runs out eventually. And then you start mining for contradictions. Again, you're not trying to replace. You're not trying to say, well, actually trans people are not dangerous. You don't rebut them. You say, it's interesting that you say that about trans people. Do you know any trans people? And often they do. That's the easy route. Usually the people they know do not match the thing they told you during question one. And so then they start to have cognitive dissonance on the door. You help them work that out. Or have you ever been, have ever, things ever been assumed about you based on factors beyond your control and were they true? And if not, how, how was that for you? People really struggle with that. And then they, you see people, I've seen it in front of me, I've seen it in videos of deep canvassing. People start going, oh shoot, I am that person on this other issue. How often do you see that descend into, a, into a, a, an actual confrontation or an argument? I think it's actually happened a lot less. My guess is a lot of people who would be prone to a confrontation just don't consent to a conversation. And this, this process is now designed so that you kind of have to like talk for 15 minutes before you'd get anywhere. So I think that probably weeds out a lot of people who just wouldn't have these arguments. I, I write in the book about a few hostile ones. You know, they weren't dangerous. They were just hostile. A guy trying to say that bin Laden's new strategy was finding Mexicans who, uh, finding Arabs who looked Mexican to sneak across the border. That was the big new idea to, to find that identity Venn diagram between Arabs and Mexicans to sneak them across the border. You know, we had this whole discussion. Um, that happens. But this method of deep canvassing has been shown with academic peer-reviewed studies by very serious scholars, Brookman and Kala, two very serious political scientists who studied it. This half an hour, 40 minutes on the door can move minds as much as years, like a decade of diffuse social change, of kind of the will and grace effect of people just living in the society and kind of taking in things, meeting neighbors. Half an hour on the door can match a decade of kind of passive social change. It's a remarkable experiment. I encourage you to look it up here as something that might, might be helpful here. So that's a great segue to where I want, where I want to go next. That is face-to-face, and that is a deep conversation, as you say, for 30 to 40 minutes. What about social media? You know, it obviously has changed the political conversation, but can social media, is there any world in which social media can actually persuade people to value democracy, for example? Here's the problem with social media, which is that it's not just that Elon Musk's mom, like, didn't raise him right. Um, <laughs> although there is that. We have gotten into this very weird situation, and I'll just be very blunt about it. Like, we've gotten into a situation in which a small number of highly limited men now control the platforms of human interaction. And if you've ever met these guys or people around them, you will find 
that not only is human interaction like not their area of expertise, but it's, you know, it's really like the thing they probably understand, least have studied, least think about, least. It's just not, like they're as illiterate at human interaction as I am illiterate at coding. But what these guys do is they make an app. It's successful. They start a company, it's successful. And then they basically just like, spread into all these domains. And so now these highly limited men, I don't think Elon Musk is like a serial killer or Mark Zuckerberg, like they're, they're not, I don't even think they're particularly malicious. I just think they're really, really limited. So what about the idea of persuasion happening on that platform? Is it possible? So these platforms have been designed by limited men like this to inflame mm-hmm. the way we talk to each other. They've been, they're, in a way they've been designed to limit persuasion and to maximize all the opposites of it. Dunking on people, kind of rallying a mob against some other people. And like, again, I'm not gonna be holier than that. Like I have absolutely played into their incentives. You are, you can be quite confrontational. I am. Is there any persuasion contained in that? Well. Or attempts at persuasion? I think the question is like, is there another way in which social media could have been designed for persuasion and study. And the answer is absolutely yes. It was just not designed that way and it still could be. I don't think those foxes running this chicken coop is, is, is gonna be the way to go. And I think we're gonna have to really think about regulating the platforms, but also like building new ways of doing this. I'd like to segue from that to a, a real life conversation that you had recently. You had a chance to address the other side, so to speak, um, at the Texas uh, Book Festival. Can you tell that story? What happened? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, this goes to your earlier question a second ago, which is that, you know, I really believe that persuade, and part of the argument of the book, I'm trying to also redefine persuasion with this book. Like, I don't think persuasion is, is moderating what you say to like reach people in the mushy middle by making it palatable to everybody. You know, the people I'm writing about in this book, and I think my own, my own view, is that persuasion is a much more complicated thing. You know, I think the people, the kids throwing tomato soup at paintings are engaged in a process of persuasion. I don't think they're the only approach. And I, but I think the notion that what they're doing is backfiring is very limited view because it's part of an ecosystem in which someone's job is to throw tomato soup to get attention and someone else's job is to eke out legislation and someone else's job is to lobby and someone else's job. And like, we all have a role and like in the broader world of how do you stop the planet from being uninhabitable? Do I think that there's a role for a persuasive lane of doing whatever it takes to make the world talk about your thing for a second? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just view persuasion as multi-multi. So in that spirit, I'll tell my tomato soup story. Um, I was invited to the Texas Book Festival. On Friday night, there was a gala for the Texas Book Festival, that which, which does literacy programs all around Texas. And Texas is a state where the government does very little for people. So they raise money from rich people to fill the gap that the rich people have left by not paying taxes. Um, <laughs> So they were doing that. They uh, invited me to speak there. I actually asked for instructions, guidance. What should I talk about? I got 10 minutes. Any, and they were like, nope, whatever you feel like, anything you want. Well, I take those instructions to heart. Um, <laughs> so I, I wrote this talk. It was sort of based on this book. And, and I, at the beginning, I talked about the very dire situation in Texas, which you may, may or may not have been following, but Texas has voluntarily like, seceded into the 14th century you know, banning abortion, not just banning abortion, but 
actual fascism in the implementation of the abortion law, which is much worse than just banning abortion. They not only banned abortion, they turned everybody into like a neighborhood informer because the mechanism for enforcing the law is anyone can like inform on women for getting an abortion and then sue and collect a bounty from the state. So in a moment, not only is abortion criminalized in that state, but you've like literally like turned the entire citizenry into the Stasi overnight. I mean, just like awful, truly like actual fascism now. And so I talked a little bit about that, just very parenthetically in the beginning. (laughs) And then I was sitting with my prepared remarks in my pocket and I, like a comedian kind of person uh, was making introductory remarks and he saluted some guests of honor who I didn't know or recognize. And then the last guest of honor and he's, you know, was the uh, wife, first lady of Texas, the wife of the governor of Texas, Cecilia Abbott. I was like, oh God, I know what I got to do now, but it's not going to be pleasant for these people. So I decided, I, I was pretty sure she was on board with the program too, but I decided to just make sure to do my research. You know, it's not a crime to be a wife. Um, and maybe it is in Texas, but you know, um, <laughs> um, not a crime to be a wife. I wanted to make sure she had her own uh, accountability on this issue. I looked it up. Not only, did, you know, she's as, uh, as, much of, has, as much of a kind of tyrannical view as her husband on this, but she had headlined a rally on, you know, pro-life issues, strong supporter of her husband's agenda, so I handwrote a couple notes in my prepared remarks. I went up there, and I think quite graciously, at least by my own standards, I just said, look, uh, you know, there are these creepy officials in this state trying to ban books and ban abortion, you know, stepping on the kind of freedom to curl up with a good book, freedom to get laid without fear. And I said, Cecilia, it's an honor to have you here tonight. And I hope you will just send a message from this room back to your husband to leave other women's bodies alone. And uh, that's sort of what the room sounded like. (laughs) And I felt a little bit alone, but I figured I was not as alone as I felt. So I just asked, do you all want Cecilia to take the message back home to the governor's residence tonight to leave other women's bodies? I mean, you know, what he does with your body is, is a contractual arrangement. I didn't say that. Um, (laughs) Leave other women's bodies alone. And a bunch of women and some men who love them, but not as many men as I would have liked to see, clapped. And then I actually invited everybody to stand up just to make it really, really clear to Cecilia that I was not as alone as she might think I am. And the whole room, with the exception of a handful of Texan men and some women who were worried about their donors, um, uh, stood up. And it was, you know, 700 people in that room. I would say 90% of them standing up and and inviting her to leave other women's bodies alone. So here's the question. Were you actually trying to persuade Cecilia Abbott of anything? This is, so this goes, exactly. This is, I'm so glad you asked that. (laughs) I was trying to persuade, but I was not trying to persuade Cecilia Abbott. Right? And this is where, and I think sometimes we have this very narrow definition of persuasion where like, the, the only person worth worrying about there is Cecilia Abbott. I was trying to organize that room against Cecilia Abbott. And I understand Texas. Texas, you probably have some, you know, places further to the West in Canada that have a similar culture that like, there's a, 
there's a like a norm of politeness. Like you don't like every, even the most liberal people in that room afterward came up to me and said like we don't do this in Texas. They they were saying it admiringly, right? We go to the country club with these people. These people may be stealing our liberties in front of our face, but we'll go and we'll do golf and we do, right. And what I wanted to do, I want it to be really hard for Cecilia Abbott to go anywhere in polite society where, sh- where there are women present and men who love them, whose liberty she and her husband have stolen. And is that persuasion to make it hard for her to move through the world? If you do that, yeah, uh, that's deterrence, right? I wanna make it uncomfortable to be awful in that way. And so it's a clue to, you know, I, I, and I will tell you something. If you said, Cecilia Abbott is actually here in Toronto tonight and she will meet you afterward, <laughs> uh, afterward for, for dinner, I would sit with her and I would have a respectful hour and a half long conversation. And I can assure you, I would do a totally different thing that I am also capable of in that conversation because that would be the thing to do in that moment. What I took away from it was that one person's persuasion is another person's protest, that there are forms of persuasion that we wouldn't all recognize as persuasion. Protest is persuasion, right? Um, And I call it the orchestra principle in the book. You know, I think this kind of change that we seek on so many things is, it takes a lot of us playing different roles. And one of the problems that I see is people getting this thing of like, I'm an oboe player and I'm offended that you are playing the bassoon in this movement. You know, I'm I'm throwing tomato soup at a thing and I'm mad that you're a septuagenarian leader eking out moderate solar credits, or I'm a septuagenarian leader and I'm mad that you're throwing tomato soup at a painting. And my view is these people are trying to do the same thing. My view is they're actually on the same team. I, you know, one of the main characters of the book is Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's about a third of the book. So if you like her, it's great news. If you don't, uh, she's a third of the book, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, One of the most brilliant people in American politics, you know, and she thinks so much about this. Her dad, her late father, who died when she was quite young, was an architect. And she said, you know, there's this weird thing in our movement where people are like, because I'm a carpenter, it's weird that you are doing sheetrock and drywall. We need to recognize in the movement, someone needs to be a carpenter and someone needs to do drywall and someone needs to protest and someone needs to do like compromises and someone needs to have dinner with Cecilia Abbott and someone needs to yell at her at a public meeting. I didn't yell at her, by the way. (laughs) Progressives in the U.S., as you say, can have very different priorities, you know, from race to class issues. I mean, it's the same in Canada. How can there be more unity within those circles? How is it possible to build what you call a popular front as opposed to, whoops, excuse me, kind of this monolithic movement that can agree on everything? Yeah, I mean, Alicia Garza, another main character in the book, one of the people, uh, progenitors of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, talks about citing Karl Marx, the difference in a popular front and a united front, right? And she says, we don't need our movements to be united fronts where we agree on everything. We need popular fronts where we cannot agree on a bunch of things, but agree on democracy, human rights, saving the planet as opposed to dying in wildfires and be able to have the discipline to do that, right? So a lot of people ask me like, are you saying, is there too much infighting on the left? Like this is a common thing, too much infighting on the left. I have a nuanced view of that. The left has infighting because it's not a cult, Infighting is a sign that you are not in a cult. The fact that you're having disagreements about 
race first versus class first approach. These are like what I call beautiful arguments. These are beautiful arguments. There's no easy answer to them. Like, I don't think we need to not have them. Was the kind of white-led abortion movement of the 60s and 70s, one of the fights I write about in the book. You know, there's now been some infighting where black-led and other groups say, you know what, that white-led abortion movement didn't see and represent a whole bunch of issues that women of color have. That's infighting, but I don't think that's bad. I'm incredibly glad that those women spoke up and said that they weren't seen and represented by those movements. And by the way, those movements are a whole lot better at speaking for a much wider array of women today. And they also win bigger victories because they have a lot more people who feel passionate for them as just happened in the midterms. So infighting is good. Like, you know, families that don't fight are actually the dangerous ones, right? Like there's healthy fighting. Couples that don't fight are in real trouble. I think you need to have the ability as a family to have your fight, take a shower, put on some nice clothes, go to a restaurant and not reenact the fight at the restaurant in front of everybody else. (laughs) I think that's the challenge for the left that I see. Is there a way to have your internal arguments, which will always be semi-public, to, to have it out, to not to flatten them, not to do this moderate centrist thing of there should be no infighting. These, these things are important. These are, the, these are in particular the things that people with less power, infighting is often just people with less power saying what's not working for them to people with more power. So shutting that down as infighting or this and that is problematic. However, I think we also need to be able to take a shower and go outside and not make a scene. If you could sum up you're thinking in recent days since the election, what do you think that election actually, or the result tells you about the whole country's divisions? What can you conclude at this stage? I mean, I think, you know, I'll tell you some of the things I felt it proved that I thought, and I can also tell you things that it showed that I wasn't sure about. I mean, I was not sure. I, uh, I'm a big believer in uh, democracy, in making arguments about democracy. I, you know, my my kind of uh, talk that I gave in the book, uh, you know, in the run-up to the midterms in several, multiple places was about how we need to build a pro-democracy movement that wins. And people were saying to me, don't use that word pro-democracy. It's not popular. The Democrats were given the same advice. Don't talk about democracy. Well, they talked about democracy. Biden went long on democracy. It wasn't polling well. He still did it. People were saying people care more about inflation. He still did it. They got better at framing some of the democracy stuff in ways that related more to kitchen table issues. Barack Obama in particular did a great job of framing a lot of the threat to democracy as these people are up to crazy things, so they're not going to be able to solve your problems. That was a good way of linking the kind of nutty anti-democratic movement with they're not going to help bring inflation down. I feel like the idea of going long on democracy was vindicated. It turns out people do value their freedoms to choose their leaders and their freedom to have their bodies left alone and not have creepy Greg Abbott's hands on their bodies. Um, I think there was also in individual candidates examples of forms of persuasion that are much more appealing than a lot of the old models. In John Fetterman, who won the Senate race in Pennsylvania, a very compelling and unusual figure, you have this kind of inversion of the normal democratic thing. The Democrats in America have often persuaded through dilution, which is water down your program to be palatable to as many people as possible. You often end up with thin gruel that actually pleases no one, but, you know, but no one learns. John Fetterman is, represents kind of what I advocate in the book, which is persuasion by actually standing very firmly and bravely where you are for big, bold, brave things, ambitious things, and trying to persuade not by cutting it in half or watering it down, 
by continuing to stand in place, but reaching out much more effectively, reaching out through how you communicate, speaking, you know, even in your affect, I mean, even in his like wearing sweatshirts and shorts all the time in November, um, conveying to working class people that he sees them, that he's one of them by his kind of willingness to pick fights. I mean, Democrats are so high-minded that Michelle Obama thing, with all due respect about when they go uh, low, we go high. I think uh, high was like the wrong location to go. Um, and he showed a kind of willingness to like troll back against a movement of trolls. And so I think the, there's a lot of little examples across the country of, of what is working. I think taking back the idea of freedom, I think freedom is a very powerful idea that the left has often conceded to the right. It should not be conceded. In Josh Shapiro, who won the governorship in Pennsylvania, there was a real reclaiming of freedom, right? I mean, by the way, climate change should be re reframed as a freedom issue. It's a freedom to breathe. Uh, you know, the freedom, uh, I mean, abortion is a freedom issue, you know. Um, uh, a fair economy is a freedom issue. And yet, as a very final question here, you know, explain it to us. You know, the Donald Trumps, the Rick DeSantis, I mean, they they do, they are popular still in the U.S. We know they want power, but why is it that anti-democratic leaders are still so appealing to voters in America? I mean, it's remarkable, right? You think about people are running in democratic elections on promises of taking away your power to choose your leaders. And they're doing well. Um, what does that say? It says that we haven't won the argument against them. You know, I'm, I am tough because I think that's what you do to people you love. <laughs> you know, like, I think it's easy to rest on the laurels of, well, they're rigging the thing and they're rigging that and they're using disinformation and to kind of tell yourself that in a fair fight, you'd be destroying them. I don't think that's the case. I think these anti-democratic forces around the world, in Brazil, in India, you know, here to a certain extent from what I read, certainly the United States, I think they're really capturing hearts and minds. And I think they're capturing hearts and minds, in my view, because this has been an age of extraordinary change and churn that has in many ways gone unaddressed and unanswered and untended by well-meaning political forces, right? And just to like rattle off things you know, like just the upheaval in gender roles and the empowerment of women over the last 50 years, right? Like racial and demographic change in many Western democracies, dramatic revolution, right? Uh, globalization, particularly the rise of China, changed every place on earth, what people do, what, what a, a good job is or not, uh, the IT, Revolution. Nothing has been left, you know, social media, these huge, huge forces we've lived through. And I think something that the political left, pro-democracy forces generally don't understand is that this has foisted a lot of psychological change on people, psychological transitions on people, men needing to figure out, I got to let go of the old way of being a man that worked for my dad and my granddad. I got to figure out some new way of being a man that's not quite vivid to me yet, or it doesn't feel, feels like an ill-fitting suit. White people being the first generation of white people in the history of their country to reckon with race. It's a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable thing that's happening in our time, right? If you're white in this room, how many of your parents and grandparents ever thought about being white? That was the whole point of being white. You didn't have to think about it, right? You can't be white now and not think about it. Now that's uncomfortable. I would say it's remarkable progress. 
remarkable. It's a huge civilizational achievement that we are struggling with whether we live well with other people, with whether the way we passively move through the world is suffocating to others. We're thinking about that. Our ancestors did not think about these things. We're thinking about it, but it's a lot, right? You used to be able to get, come out of high school, make things with your hands. You can't do that anymore in many places, right? That's a whole new psychology for people. Who am I going to be? Am I going to be okay? I'm going to provide for my family. All these jobs, coal, oil, that provided livelihoods to people, but also provided a sense of community, a sense of mission. Gone. We're saying you can't do that anymore. You know, things you're going to eat, beef, maybe you're going to have to eat that less. Again, all these things may be righteous, but we're asking a lot of people. All these, we're asking people to learn new skills, to live in new ways, to not live in ways that befoul the planet as a matter of course. And as right as these things are, I think we don't understand how discombobulated a lot of people are, how out of sorts they are, how, how a lot of people feel like they've been asked to vacate one kind of residence of being, and but the new place they're supposed to live in is not here. And the right understands deeply everything I just said and has built its entire platform, at least in the United States, you tell me if it's true here, its entire platform on taking advantage of that sense of psychological displacement, that sense of I'm not sure who I will be on the far side of change, and has built an entire edifice of information, of political outreach, of organizing on I will come in, I will see your fear and anxiety about the new you in a world of change, and I will tell you you don't have to change. I will tell you that these people are conspiring against you. I'll tell you it's George Soros's fault. I'll tell you it's the Jews, so on and so forth. And broadly speaking, I think pro-democracy, pro-human rights, pro-fixing climate forces have kind of been asleep at the wheel on helping walk with people through these psychological changes, helping men see that it'll, you'll be okay in a gender equal world, helping white people see you'll be okay in a world of racial equality, helping people who work in polluting industries see that you'll be okay in a world where we solve climate. If we do not address the fears and anxieties that I believe are at the very wellspring of politics, we are leaving the worst actors in politics to cater to those things alone. So insightful. Thank you, Anand Gerardes. Thank you so much. You've been listening to my conversation with American author and political analyst Anand Girdaradas. His book is called The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. He spoke at a public event, part of the Toronto Public Libraries on Civil Society series. Episode producer is Lisa Godfrey. Technical production, Julia Whitman and Nick Bonin. Web producer for Ideas is Lisa Ayuso. Ideas senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.